This morning we are in Romans 9, so please open your Bibles there. You know, we've been in this passage for about a month now, and Romans 9, you know, it's one of those things where it's not so hard to understand, it's just hard to receive, right? You know, Romans 9 just completely devastates and deconstructs our postmodern narrative of self-determinism, of autonomy, of self-sufficiency, of hyper-individualism, of I can make life on my own, I can, I can make things work, I can fix things, I'm in control of my lives, and it just cuts right into the middle of that with this vision of the all-encompassing reality of a sovereign God who loves, orchestrates, designs, moves in, and orders the affairs of the world. And one of the things that's, that's been particularly encouraging for me um, as a pastor this season is to see how so many of you have resonated with that God-centered vision. How so many of you have said, you know, I, it's not an easy doctrine, but what's, the, what's even more terrifying than a sovereign God is a God who's not sovereign. That's, that's truly terrifying. And the reason that um, I'm, one of the reasons I'm a pastor, one of the reasons that I feel I can get up and proclaim God's word with some authority is because of the sovereignty of God. I believe it's the foundation for any hope that we have in this life. I believe that it's the bedrock of our world, our lives, um, of our salvation. All we have to do is turn on the news, um, like we did last night, and hear about this horrific shooting, or that war, or that catastrophe, to know that life is fragile, it is temporary, it is fading, it is a mist, it's in a constant state of disorder and entropy, which means, church, we need a faith in a God who is big enough to weather all this. We need a God who is big enough to weather our storms. When crisis and suffering and persecution come, and it has for many of you, and for the rest of us, it will, the question is, will the theological roots in our life go deep enough? Do, do we trust in and believe in a God who is enough to weather any storm? Will your God be big enough to shoulder the tragedies of this life? You see, my, my, my goal, ultimate goal, is not to get us all to affirm the same things intellectually, theologically, but it's to get us to, as a church family to find great comfort in this all-encompassing vision of the sovereign God. And Paul is gonna bring this part of his discussion on God's sovereignty to a close this morning. And, and if you haven't been with us, just, just a reminder of what's happening here. This is not theoretical for Paul. Paul's looking out at the empty chair at the dinner table, the empty pew in the sanctuary. He's reflecting on the fact that his, his own kinsmen in the flesh, the Jewish people, God's chosen covenant people in the Old Testament are not there. The church is largely populated with Gentiles and God, 
God's people have rejected their own Messiah. And, and Paul's aim, his central aim in this chapter has been to answer this question. Paul, has the word of God failed? And Paul's emphatic answer has been absolutely not. God is accomplishing his sovereign purpose in election. He is completely and totally in charge. And we left off last time with this sort of, I mean, this was Paul's drop the mic moment, right? Paul's drop the mic moment. He left us last time when he said this. He said, God shows compassion on whom he wants and he hardens whom he wants. And we talk about a drop the mic moment, right? In other words, he saves many who don't deserve it and he lets others perish who do deserve it. And in all of this, God is not unrighteous, God is not unfair, but the one thing God is, is God. Now in our text this morning in Romans 9, Paul wants to answer one final objection, one final question that, that maybe many of us might be asking at this point in this study. And it's, and it's simply this, I think it might be the toughest question of all. Paul, if, if it's really true that God is sovereign, and if it's really true that he has the power to save, and if it's really true that he has mercy on whom he has mercy and he hardens whom he hardens, my question then, Paul, is why doesn't he just save everyone? Isn't that the question? Isn't that just part of the, the context and the fabric of so many points of crisis and suffering in our life. God, I know you could heal, but why, why don't you? God, I know you could bring reconciliation here, but why don't you? God, I know that you could save, but why aren't you? God, I know that you can move, but, but why are you withholding your hand? And it's to this most fundamental, I think, of all questions that Paul wants to address this morning. So I'm going to invite us to stand as we read God's word together. We're going to read from Romans 9 verse 19 to verse 30. Hear the word of the Lord, Four Oaks. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. 
And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Father, that's us. Lord, if you had not rescued us, if you had not saved us, if you had not opened the eyes of our heart, um, our plight would be no better than those two infamous cities in the Old Testament. But Lord, it is purely by your sovereign mercy and grace that we stand before you this morning in your word, only possible because of the work of Jesus Christ, your son, done on our behalf. And so, Father, we entrust ourselves to you this morning and to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may take your seats. You know, as I was reflecting on the years I've been preaching and my uh, effort oftentimes to alliterate my points, I've noticed that P is one of my favorite letters of the alphabet, okay? Probably because my name starts with P. And so, once again, it is the case this morning. So, so here are three points. We're going to talk about God's prerogative, God's purpose, and God's plan. All right, so let's talk about God's prerogative first. And we see in verse 19, Paul voices this final sort of ultimate objection to this idea of God's sovereignty and unconditional election, the response is this. You will say to, the, to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So what, what, is, what does that mean? What is Paul getting at there? Well, I think, I think if, you, if you study, it, it becomes clear. It's very simple. It's, it's this. How can God hold people accountable for the way he made them? That's, that's the question. How does he hold anyone responsible for their sin? If, in fact, he is the one who shows mercy to whom he wants to show mercy. How, that, Paul, that seems inestimably fair. How, how can we resist his will? What, what I mean, that, that's the question. That's the objection. Now, Paul's initial response to this let's be honest, is not what we might call emotionally satisfying, okay? What does he say? Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Now, I call this, for all you old Andy Griffith fans, nip it in the bud theology, right? So, so Barney Fife, and if, if you don't know who Barney Fife is, you haven't lived, okay? But anyway, get TV land, Andy Griffith episodes, one of his favorite sayings, Barney sayings, nip it, nip it in the bud, it means shut up, right? It means, it means put a lid on it, shut it down, don't let it go any further. And Paul seemingly has this Barney Fife nip it in the bud response. Who do you think you are, Paul says? You're just a mere man, who are you to talk back to God and to make an accusation against him? Nip it, what Paul says. Now, let me, let's try to uncover this a little bit about what Paul is saying and what he's not saying here. We have to understand something about the way Paul poses this hypothetical question. You see, there is a way in Scripture to honestly and openly question God. We see this all throughout God's word, particularly in the Psalms. 
help me understand God. God, give me a heart of wisdom. God, show me your ways. I don't understand your ways, but show me your ways. God, I don't have faith, but give me faith. Because we think about Mary's response, right? When the angel came and said, you're going to have a child, and Mary said, how will this be? I am a virgin. Have you lost your mind? That, that's, there's plenty of instances of this in the scripture. And, and what Paul is saying here in no way precludes us coming to God with open hands, with a humble heart, with a submitted attitude to say, God, help me. God, I'm struggling. God, I don't understand. God, this doesn't seem right. God, this seems to be some injustice. That's not what Paul is speaking against here. See, the way Paul answers the question gives us an idea of the posture that he imagines this, this, this sort of hypothetical person asking. This is a question that's raised with a fist held high. This is a question that's adversarial. This is a question that's, that's angry, that's accusatory, that sort of puts God in the dock, in the box like we talked about last week and said, God, how dare you? That's the scenario Paul is responding to. And I, and I, and I think this, is, this teaches us something important, okay? Paul's discipling us here towards a humble posture of submission and reverence and humility as we approach the Almighty. Because we are not in a debate class. We, we, we are not in a free speech forum where God is by one podium and we're on the other. We're not on equal standing. And Paul wants to remind us that we are standing on holy ground. We are in the presence of the Almighty, and as such, we recognize he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And we, in fact, are temporary, fallen, and fallible. We are in no position to pass judgments on God. If you wanna boil a lot of evangelical theology and a lot of what I would call abhorrent, bordering on heretical theology that we spring up we see spring up all the time online, even at Christian bookstores, it can be boiled down to this. We don't like what this doctrine says about God, so we just want to round the edges off a little bit. You know, I don't like thinking about worshiping a God like that. I would rather worship a God like this. And we end up sort of, and this is a John Piper term, we try to rescue God from his own sovereignty. We try to find a way to let God off the hook. And Paul's simply saying, God doesn't need our help. Thank you very much. God's got this one. And Paul gives us a helpful metaphor to understand who God is in these things. Okay, so let's look back at the text. He uses the metaphor of the potter and the clay. He says, well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? It's a rhetorical question. See, this, was, this metaphor would have been very familiar to people in the ancient world who are reading this letter. See, every household had to have some sort of way to make pottery 
or vessels or dishes. It, it, there was no late Saturday afternoon run to, to Target, right? They all, they had, you kind of had to, to, you use what you made and you created. And as the master of the home, you, you decided here, here are the vessels, the pots, the instruments I need, and here is what they are meant to do. Okay, so our modern day equivalent, the, we get outside and work in our yard. So Susan and the girls are gone. They've been up visiting her family. And I've attempted over the course of two days to tame our yard, right? And if some of y'all would be kind enough to stop by and help me spread pine straw, that would be so awesome, right? <laughs> it's just, but, but at no time in there does the yard kind of poke its head up and say, hmm, I don't like what you're doing there, right? Put a little over there, put a little over there. And it's like, well, what do you mean? I, 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 I'm in charge of this situation, right? That, that's, that's what Paul is drawing on here. And I think there are, there are a couple of Old Testament passages that Paul has in mind. And remember, Paul's not making this stuff up. Paul's not giving us the latest on Greek philosophy. When Paul is answering the most delicate, basic questions, important questions of life, where is Paul going to? The Word. Which means, and guys, I know some of you are in very different places than others as you wrestle through Romans 9. And again, my... My goal is not to get uniform affirmation of a theological statement. It's to get you going to God's word. It's, get, it's to get you digging into his scriptures. And so Paul appeals to God's word. So I think one of the passages he has in mind, for sure, is from Jeremiah. Now listen to this passage. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Now this is the payoff verse. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. See, Jeremiah says this is, this is who we are in relationship to God. He is the potter. We are the clay. He's working at the wheel. And, he, and, and you've seen people do this, right? And some of you may make, I think some of you make pottery here and you have your little wheel and you pedal or whatever it is that you do. I don't do these sorts of things, but you're shaping the, 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 the pot. And for a while, the pot just looks like an ugly lump of clay. And, and if you were to stop and just pause and self-reflect and say, this pot of clay does not look like anything that I recognize. How inappropriate would it be at that point to say, hey, I don't recognize what you're doing there, right? Let me show you a better way. See, I, I had an instance of this back in the 70s. I was a little kid. I would watch Sesame Street on TV, on PBS. And right after Sesame Street would always come this wild-haired Afro guy who would paint. His name was Bob Ross, right? I knew Bob before he was Bob. You know what I'm saying? We grew up together. I know part of you now are of the Bob Ross cult, but listen, I was there before 
before he became super famous. But I remember even as a little kid watching him sketch out and paint and thinking two things. One, this guy is weird. But number two, what is he doing? What is he making? What is he painting? And oftentimes, if I didn't know what I did know, I just had to wait. If you just wait over time, slowly, right, the picture comes into focus. And Paul says, that's the precise nature of our relationship to God. A lot of times we don't recognize what he's sculpting. Sometimes we, don't, we wonder, is, is he sculpting at all? It feels like he has a chainsaw and he's taking it to the side of my head, right? So it feels like he has just like dropped a nuclear bomb in the middle of my life. But God says, if you had the perspective I have, you would know that I am crafting you and doing something beyond what you can accomplish or imagine. Now, there's a second text that Paul has in mind here, I think. It's Isaiah 45. Now, here's Paul's warning. He says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to his father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. Guys, just a question before we move along here. Where in your life, I don't ask if, I ask where, it's the same for all of us, do you need to be reminded, do I need to be reminded that God is the potter. I am just a piece of clay. Now, now granted, a holy piece of clay, a sanctified piece of clay, an adopted piece of clay, but this is why they tell you in preaching class, don't mix your metaphors, okay? You're, you're, a, you're, you're a piece of clay. And, and where, where do we need to be reminded that there's only one potter? Only one. See, the deception of this age is that there are many potters. You can be a potter. You can make your way, create your own life, control your own destiny. But we know in the quiet of our hearts at night as we lay in bed, that's just not true. Now, let's try to dig in a little more here under this first point about what Paul means when he talks about God preparing Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction versus vessels of mercy prepared for destruction. And at first blush, that, that can seem really hard, right? Really harsh. We picture God in heaven with his witch's hat over his brew and his cauldron, stirring with an evil laugh, thinking, I'm gonna create him evil, and I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna create him just for the simple purpose of pouring my wrath out on him. And we wanna be careful because we wanna try to get under what Paul's saying here. So let's start with vessels of mercy. Vessels of mercy prepared, it's an active verb. It means to fit 
It means to make right. It means to create for a specific purpose. It's an active, purposeful action. So imagine shards of broken pot everywhere and God purposefully coming along and picking up shards and bringing them back to the potter's table and beginning to mold them and form them and transform them from a trash heap into something beautiful. He begins to fashion them for mercy. Smashed, broken, thrown to the trash pile pots. It's an active verb. However, vessels of wrath, when it says prepared, that is a passive verb. And you're going to notice that the word God is not attached to vessels of wrath in the same way as to vessels of mercy. And I think the reason Paul uses different tenses is it's not because God is not sovereign over the vessels of wrath and the vessels of mercy. It's just that the way he fits them is differently, is different. See, the vessels of destruction are already prepared for destruction. As we saw with the example last week, Pharaoh prepared himself. God did not come along and harden a purely innocent, noetic Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart was already hardened. What God did was said, Pharaoh, I'm going to pass over you. I'm going to raise you up and put you in this particular position so that my name and honor and power might be glorified. And so what Paul, I think, is saying here is that while God actively saves those who are already perishing, there are others he leaves and passes over in their justly deserved condition. Here's what John Stott says. I was going to say, if you, have a, if you have an issue with what John Stott says, to email him, but he's with the Lord. So there we go. So John Stott It is nowhere suggested that God has the right to create sinful beings in order to punish them. But here's the point. But rather, that he has the right to deal with sinful human beings according to his good pleasure, either to pardon or to punish. Now, at this point, if you're playing along at home and paying attention, you might say, well, Pastor Paul, that's all well and fine. But my fundamental question still remains. If God fits some for mercy and he leaves others for destruction or for wrath, why does he do that? Why doesn't he just save everyone? We know he can. In verses 22 and 23, I think, are the two verses in the Bible where Paul comes the closest to answering that question. Now, he doesn't say everything that he could say. We might wish that he would say say much more, but we have to understand our job here as the clay, right, is to hear what the potter says and to hear his instructions. But I do think this is one of those moments for Oaks where God sort of peels back the curtain just for a moment and says, this is all too high and mysterious and wonderful for you. But if you must have an answer, let me, let me show you this. So this is point number two, God's purpose. 
Look at verses 22 and 23. What if God, Paul says, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And here is the payoff verse. This is as close as we get. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. First, let's ask the question, who are the vessels of mercy? And that's important because what Paul is saying here is that everything that God does in his providence and his sovereignty is for his glory, but to display, not only to, to, to glorify himself, but to display his glory to his vessels of mercy. And who are the vessels of mercy? If you know Jesus Christ, you're a vessel of mercy. The vessels of mercy are those whom God has prepared. He has awakened their hearts. He has taken the blinders off. He has drawn them irresistibly to, themself, to himself. He has, he has opened the eyes of their heart. He has shown them the beauty of Christ. And if that's you this morning, if you are someone, you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been fitted for mercy. You are a vessel of mercy. And what God desires to do in you is to make himself known to you in all of his glory, in all of his attributes. See, guys, God does not exist in parts. Theologians call this, call this the, the, the simplicity of God. In other words, God is not part grace, part mercy, part love, part justice, part righteousness. God is 100% all of those. And if you want to fully know God, God has to display all of his attributes to you. So think about for a second a marriage. And in a marriage, to be truly one flesh with someone means to fully know the other person. It means when two people fully know each other as much as possible in this broken human life, there is a oneness that is created. When you know someone in their entirety, all aspects of them. And what Paul seems to be saying is that God's character, that his holiness, his wrath, his justice, his righteousness, are just as much a part of his character as love and mercy and grace and forgiveness and in order for you to know God as a vessel of mercy, God wants to display all of himself. See, guys, there is no greater reality in the history of the universe than God. And the most loving, gracious thing God can do for you and for God to do for me is to reveal himself for who he is. Because we, we, we see this, right, in the example of Pharaoh. See, Pharaoh in Egypt had a hardened heart. He was a broken piece of, of pottery. God passed over Pharaoh, situated his life so that he would, what? Continue to harden his heart and chase after the Israelites in the desert from Egypt. And what, what happens in that story? Well, Pharaoh's heart is so hardened that he chases God's people through the Red Sea, and you know that you've seen it, the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, you've seen this, right? 
the, the, the Red Sea collapses over the armies of Pharaoh. They are destroyed. And what does Israel do at that point? Do they say, hmm, oh, poor Pharaoh. No, what do they do? They wrote songs. They celebrated. They praised God because Pharaoh and the armies got exactly what their sin deserved. God had shown himself glorious and mighty and awesome. And do you know that Israel developed its whole history around this one event? This one event of God showing his mercy to Israel in delivering them, but showing his wrath against Egypt by destroying evil. And in that way, Israel came to know God fully for who he is. And you know where else we see this, by the way? We see it in the cross. We see it in the cross. We see not just the love, mercy, and grace and forgiveness of Jesus dying for sinners, but we see the wrath, power, and holiness of God who's poured out that wrath and justice on his own son to pay the penalty for our sins. And do you know what? God says we are he is glorified and our souls are enlarged as we come to understand who he is. All that he's doing for Oaks, remember this, he's doing for the objects of mercy. One day Jesus is going to return and he is going to judge every injustice in the world, in the history of the world. The shooting last night in Buffalo, the war in Ukraine, the untold millions that have been killed in this war or that genocide, all instances of physical abuse, sexual abuse, domestic violence, racism, the list could go on and on and on. And when that happens on that day, God's people, the objects of mercy, will give him praise. And they will give him glory and they will give him honor and say, God, so I deserve this same, but by your grace you have fitted me for your mercy. All right, last, last point and we're gonna be done. Guys, God's plan. Paul began this chapter by setting out to prove that while the Gentiles have embraced Christ and the Jews by and large have rejected him, that God's plan, the word of God, has not failed. And in a sort of a closing argument to all of this, Paul is going to quote two Old Testament passages. And these Old Testament passages are to remind us that God has not been playing catch up. God has not been playing from behind. That the events of redemptive history have not taken him by surprise. In fact, not only has he been sovereign over them, but he has prophesied and predicted them. So let's look at this first passage from Hosea. Look back at the text. And indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. Now, Paul is talking, of course, here about the Gentiles. That's us. And lest you ever forget what your salvation is all about, it's simply this. You at one time were not a people of God. You were once enemies of the cross. I was once an enemy of God. But even 
as we were enemies of God, not his people, God says, I'm going to make you one of my people. I'm going to fit you for mercy and grace. And then the second passage is from Isaiah. And he says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. And of course, Paul here is talking about the Israelites. He's talking about the fact that despite their privileged status as the people of God, only a remnant have been saved because only a remnant pursued righteousness with God through faith. Again, all prophesied and predicted hundreds, thousands of years before these things took place. What What are we to take from this? Why is Paul using these two scripture texts as part of his closing argument here. And I, and I think there, there's two things that we want to take away from this, two things we want to put an exclamation point on as we kind of come out of this section of Romans 9. Here it is. In the case of the Israelites, this is a reminder for folks that regardless of your ethnicity, your background, your spiritual heritage, your family, your resources, your first world advantages, and guys, we have all those in spades. None of them will do you any spiritual good apart from Jesus. There is still the call for every person to come to personal saving faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who your family was, your dad, your mom, your kids, your job, your lineage. None of it matters before God. The only thing that matters, Paul tells us, is is the righteousness of God expressing itself through faith. Do you know Jesus? That's that's one application point from this. Here's a second application point, though. In the case of the Gentiles, remember, these were the rough kids on the block. These were the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all the people who had inflicted great harm, punishment, and injustice against God's people. And he says, but those people who were not my people, they're my people now. What's the takeaway from us? Folks, remember, regardless of your sin, your mistakes, your treachery, your rebelliousness against God, no sin is too great to keep you apart from Jesus. See, you may be walking through this this season, this text, just with confusion in your heart, embitteredness in your heart, brokenness in your heart. But God says, none of it, none of it, none of it is big enough to keep you from me if you know Jesus, if you've embraced him. See, the solution, whether you're near from God, far from God, Jew, Gentile, spiritually privileged, not spiritually privileged, is the same, run to Jesus. Run to him, entrust yourself to him, cling to him, fall upon him. Give up on your pondering, your philosophies, your your objections, your pushback, and simply worship the Lord your God, your maker. Now, 
as we bring this part of Romans 9 to a close, there, there's still this sort of thread out here, this outstanding question. And it's, well, Paul, Apostle Paul, what is God's sovereign purposes for his Old Testament people Israel? We know they're hardened. We know they've fallen away. We know there's only a remnant. We know the Gentiles have been brought in. Does this mean, Paul, that God is irrevocably done with his old covenant people? And as we're going to see in Romans 10 and 11, Paul's answer is absolutely not. God has more in store than you can ever wish, dream, or imagine because of Jesus. Let's pray. 